Aggression is one of the last dirty words in our culture. You can be crass, you can be rude, you can even be profane, but ho, ho, aggressive, don't be aggressive, except it's wrong, dead wrong. I promise you nothing of meaning and transcendence will come into your life passively. It's time for you to get into the arena to push back against a passive, mediocre existence. I'm Brian Tome, and this is The Aggressive Life. Have you ever noticed that when you're doing what everybody else is doing, it's never aggressive? If you're doing what everybody else is doing, then there's a current that's in culture and in your peer group that's just sort of carrying you along. It's being passive. It's going to naturally happen. You're going to naturally graduate from high school because nearly everybody graduates from high school unless you're in a very impoverished area. It just sort of naturally happens because your peer group is doing it. But the things that are aggressive are things that you value that your peer group doesn't value and your peer group isn't doing. Things that are aggressive are things that are coming from a place of esteem and ascribing worth that other people don't have esteem in that area and are not ascribing worth. Whenever you're going to be aggressive, you're going to be accused of being crazy. You're going to be accused of being financially irresponsible. You're going to be accused of not protecting your family. You're going to be accused of not taking care of your future, not being ready for retirement. You're going to be accused of all kinds of things that the passive people who are going the way of modus operandi status quo, the way they're living their life, and they're not living it aggressively. They're living it passively, maybe successfully, but nonetheless passively because life is just happening. Ascribing worth intentionally to a value that you want to exalt is what aggressive people do, and it's what my guest today has done. So with me today is Beth Guckenberger, author and co-executive director of Back to Back Ministries. She and her husband, Todd, have led Back to Back for 23 years. They work with orphans in Mexico, India, Nigeria, Haiti. She's also written nine books in between being a biological parent, a foster parent, and adopted children. She and Todd have raised 10, count them, 10 kids. And if that's not enough, she also speaks regularly at conferences and churches. Please welcome today's guest, Beth Guckenberger. <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me. Yes, it's, it's good to have you had. So tell us more about your organization. Just g- g- tell us why we should pay attention to this woman. <laughs> well, I don't know about you pay attention to whatever you want to, but the, our organization is a it's a collection. It's a movement of people who've decided that orphan and vulnerable children are in the heart of God, and we're going to do everything we can to to find them, locate them, and love on them. And in the beginning, we used to think, oh gosh, I. I, that means we have to, you know, put roofs over their children's homes and we need to build wells so they have fresh water and we need to make sure they have good tennis shoes. And But over the course of the last 20 plus years, we've realized transformational change only happens when life on life over an extended period of time reworks any child from a hurt place's thinking. And um, so, yeah, now we now it looks all kinds of ways, depending on the different country and culture we're working in. How many countries are you in right now? We are in nine locations. Nine locations. And how many, how many uh, kids do you serve a year? I'm not even sure I could answer that. We don't quantify them in that way. We don't really head count in that way. We have 
kids that we are fully responsible for, kids that we come alongside other nationals who are taking care of. We have kids that come in community outreaches. So it'd be too hard to actually put our hand around a single number. Okay. That sounds like a cop-out answer. That sounds like a very non-aggressive, afraid-to-tell-me-the-answer answer. What, think you're going to be judged for your numbers or something like that? Do you feel... (laughs) I actually think that's the wrong column to count. So I'm not really counting their head. All right. What are you counting then? Our output versus the outcome. Some people used to say to me all the time, like, what do you see back-to-back in 10 years? Like, where, where do you see it going? Could you imagine you would be where you are today? And I used to, like, want to come up with a big number to impress the person that asked me the question. Like, you know, in 10 years, we're going to be in 100 countries helping a million children with a billion dollars. Like, but I realized, I mean, all I was doing was coming up with a big number. The, the, the truth of the matter is that's, that's not vision. Vision isn't coming up with a big number. Vision is saying, I'm going to listen to the Lord and I'm going to take the next step. And whatever he wants to do with that next step, he'll multiply it or add it or or whatever he wants to do, he can do it. My job is listening and obeying. And so sometimes that takes us into places where we can feel the footprint get really big really fast because the need has been waiting for us to step in and do an intervention. Sometimes in places where we serve, we think, is all of this effort going to be about these seven children? Yeah, it might be. And that's just the way that I think that God measures the output. But you certainly don't have 300 staff people serving seven children. We do not have seven. And we do not have 300 <laughs> if you people do, I would just tell you you're mismanaging your leadership <laughs> if that's the case. No, yes. We have, we impact thousands and thousands of kids around the world, if that makes you feel better. That does make me feel better. Now, <laughs> let's talk let's talk about that a little bit here, because um, yeah, it's interesting having this interaction with you, because you, you're getting a lot of stuff done. I mean, you are chop, chop, go forward, forward, forward. So I didn't really have to jam you on your philosophy on this because your fruitfulness and your um, your faithfulness and your aggressiveness really speaks for itself. When I hear most people kind of poo-poo numbers, the people who I hear who poo-poo numbers have poo-poo numbers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're right. Am I right? Yes. So, you are. so you have a you're coming from a place of strength, yeah, uh, and a place of uh, integrity in terms of your output. But why do you think that is? That increasing numbers of us are uncomfortable with numbers. I think that for us, when we try to make a decision about do we go here or there, do we spend this dollar or that dollar, do we whatever the decision we're trying to make, we want it to be vision driven. And I think when you start to bean count then you start to make decisions based on how that's like optics. How's it going to look to a donor? How's it going to look to, you know, a local government official? How's it going to look to whomever? And you want to have vision-driven decisions. And I, I, I think for us, that's been kind of the secret sauce. If, if, if there's a vision-driven, if there's a call, we step onto the call, I'm most frequently quoted as saying that you know you're in the center of God's will when you have more questions than you have answers. Like you often don't have any of the answers to the questions. Like how's it going to work out and where's it going to come from? And I don't know. I don't actually know what's going to happen next. But there's a call and a vision. We're going to step into it and see what happens. So let's go back to the beginning, Beth. Yes, back sir. to the beginning. Let's go. How did this start with you? What When you were a little girl, what did you want to grow up to be? And when did things change or did they not change? Was this always what you wanted to do? This is definitely not what I always wanted to do. I always imagined myself as the governor. So, um, yeah, this is definitely not, was not in my dream. <laughs> then I went on a high school mission trip and just got a taste of what the world was like. Then went away to college with my then boyfriend. And we went in the uh, early 90s to uh, the country of Albania right after the government fell. And we saw an orphan there and it made an impression on us. Enough so that when we came back to our hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio, we were teachers and we had the summers free. And uh, the youth pastor at our church said, hey, you have the summers free. You're not afraid. 
of airplanes and uh, you like kids. So can you take the kids on summer mission trips? So one summer, um, the summer of 1996, we were serving. Our job was to paint this wall around a church we were partnering with. And we were painting it from blue to green. And I was pretty sure the year before we'd painted it from green to blue. And I was complaining to my husband, like, there's no way on earth that we came all this way to paint this wall. Like, there's got to be something else that's going on in the city. And so don't miss the detail. We left our students in the hands of very responsible adults. But then we jumped into a taxi cab and just started to, with terrible Spanish, ask the guy if there were any orphanages in the city. We're like, orfano, orfanorio, orfanatorio. <laughs> orfanorio. Like, <laughs> like, does any of this sound like Spanish to you? Anyway, we, we met this director at this orphanage. The kids hadn't had meat in over a year, and the windows were all broken. And we could come back the next day and do something about that. And that's kind of how it all started. The next day, we were serving hamburgers. And I watched one of the little four-year-old girls carry her plate up to her room. And she'd come several times to the table. And Todd was like, what four-year-old can have five hamburgers? So I followed her. And she and her preschool buddies were lifting up their mattresses. And they were sticking burgers underneath them, saving them for another day. And we stood in that door frame and thought, I know a lot of people that would buy hamburgers for orphans if they only knew how to do it. Mm-hmm. So the next year, we were double income, no kids. Like today, we have, you know, 11 children. But at that point, we had double income, no kids. And so we thought, we'll just live off one of our salaries. We don't need all this money. And at the end of that year, that school year, we thought we were sitting on a treasure. It was just one year of a teaching salary, but it felt like a ton of money at 24. And we moved to Mexico. We thought, we'll just learn the language, try to establish some relationships and see what God has for us. Just going to Mexico. And how often have you been to Mexico before that? I mean, that would have been our fourth trip. Okay. So just going to Mexico, going to move there, and you don't know the language. Or the people. Or the people. We didn't have health just insurance. <laughs> going. No insurance. <laughs> yeah, we just drove our car from Ohio to Monterey, Mexico. And what kind of support did you get from people who were normal people in your life? Oh, they thought we were crazy. Yes. My dad had died the year before, and so all the you know men in his life were like looking at me like, oh my gosh, she's lost it. And people didn't like the idea I was leaving my mom. Um, yeah, they, we, we got a lot of people that thought it was a phase, thought we would run out of money and come back. We, we kept praying and telling people, we want 50 of you to come visit us. We thought if we could get 50 Cincinnatians to come see firsthand the kind of thing that we had seen, we would multiply in some way what what we were dreaming about happening. At the end of that first year, we'd had 350 people come and we realized, oh, God actually has been working with the orphan in Mexico a long time before we showed up. We didn't have to start anything. We just went into a place where there was a vortex and began to manage those resources. So you didn't find initially, though, that people were supporting your aggressive move? No. Oh, no. I mean, why do you think that is? I mean, I would assume you had some people around you. You're obviously a very faith-filled person. Yes. Um, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're a person of faith. And I would assume you had people around you who were people of faith. Yes, very much so. And yet, why do you think that they couldn't, by faith, see something that you were willing to see? Um, I, I, I'm, not, I'm really going to refuse to say that they didn't have vision. I think they just were more comfortable with answers. And we didn't have a lot of answers. We couldn't say, like, we're going to go there and we're going to start an orphanage and we already have this much money for the building fund, so we're going to get there. And then it was like, we don't really know what we're going to do. We're going to go there, we're going to find hurt people, and we're going to be present in their life and we're going to see what results from it. I think that's the wrong answer. 
That's what I think. Okay. I think that's the wrong answer. I mean, I'm used to people saying that. That's so. all right. I tell you <laughs> what I think it is. I think it is average people are very intimidated when something someone does something different. I, don't, I think the average people in your life back then didn't know what it would look like for someone to do something that was doing what you were doing. I, I, I think that we as Americans, if we don't have our insurance policies and our Excel spreadsheets and our, and, our, and our fallback plans and our phantom donors and our everything, then we can't make a move. I get asked a lot, like, like kind of how did you know? And I, we tell the story that we bought this like whiteboard and stuck it in our family room. And we divided it in three, three categories because we had really three opportunities. We could go to Mexico, this dream we had. Somebody was offering to put Todd through some advanced education and he could advance in his career track. Or we had a church that wanted us to work together and that we were already enjoying the commissioning piece of it. And so we decided for 30 days when we had a thought, good or bad, about any of those options, we were going to write it on the whiteboard. And at the end of 30 days, the, the, if you just visually looked at the board, the section that said Mexico was jammed packed. And it wasn't always jammed packed to good things. Like the other sections had more positive things to say, like you know, things like stability and economic trajectory and all that. But you could tell what was occupying our mind was Mexico. And there was just this deep conviction inside of us. We've got to do what we're feeling passionate about, regardless of what everything else looks like on paper. This is clearly what's what's taking up residence in our mind. It's hard for me to imagine the, how old you, when this happened? 24. years still here. Man, the folks who are in college or in their young 20s today seem to have, not seem to, do have an inordinate amount of stress, fears, paranoia. The greatest fearful generation in the history of America. Yeah. Um, anybody who works with those folks knows that. And anybody who just has read the statistics, <laughs> that, that, that's not opinion. That, that, that's just the truth. We're not the, America's not the land of the free. We're the land of the fear. I'm not sure that there's very many 20-somethings who don't have kids and have options who would still choose the same thing. You you, you were pretty crazy back then. I mean, I'm actually— And even crazy today. I was going to say, I'm actually even more that way now than right. I was then, but I— Well, what do you mean you're more that way now? you were then. Todd and I together actually have both always leaned into fear instead of away from fear. So actually when f- when that kind of feeling of like you're at the edge of the cliff feeling and your stomach's going to drop off, that to me feels like confirmation. It doesn't feel to me like something I should resist. So now, you know, 20 some years later, I now know you just got to get over that hump and goodness is following. Then I was just, it was just a compulsion in me. Like I just... I mean, when I was 16 years old, I worked at the roller coaster at Kings Island called The Beast. And at night we would, I'm sure this is not okay anymore, but we used to take all the brakes off of it and just ride it. We called them night rides. And the momentum of that roller coaster would go so fast that when it wouldn't stop at the station, it would it would run several times. And it would run very, very fast. And you'd be bruised up and down when it would stop. And I'd get out of that and think, when can we do that again? When, when is it, when's the next time to do that again? So, I mean, there's something that that's... That was an amazing roller coaster. That was one of the roller coasters were roller coasters. Yes. The Beast. And then what was the one that came after it? Son of Beast. Yes. Oh, God bless America. Back when roller coasters were roller coasters. You could take the brakes off of the roller coaster? I mean, just the employees at night. The, the, it's a, it was a wooden roller coaster. So instead of having like a brake, it actually had air that... 
instead of having a gas pedal, it had air that released brakes. And so if you dropped the brakes to zero, then there was nothing to stop it. And yeah, anyway, sorry, wow. Kings Island. That was a long time ago. And I'm wow. sure under new management, they do nothing like wow. that. But there was a time when I loved... I love that feeling. So today I'm even actually more that way than I've ever been because I now know it's you're going to be okay. <laughs> like that feeling actually is a good sign. You are more that way now. As you've aged, you've gotten more. Gosh, yes. Because that's not the normal trajectory, I don't think. Yeah. I think the normal trajectory is we age and we become a bit less go for it. You yeah. Would you agree with that or not? I do. Yeah. I think I have to, I mean, I do surround myself with people who encourage that in me and who I encourage that in them. I think... Living in the foreign field, we ended up living in Mexico for 15 years. Living in that kind of environment in community taught me what authentic relationships look like and how they give feedback to each other. And I think some of the things that work against us in U.S. culture is we don't give feedback unless we're online and then it kind of doesn't count. We don't give like real life feedback to each other like I'm a, I think you're, you're acting like you're afraid. You should try that or we don't. And so I purposely surround myself with people who who celebrate that aggression in my life. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, because I find for me, you know, the older I get, the older the thing that I lead is, the more there is to protect, the more there is that can fail, the more staff members who are looking to me to have a paycheck, the the more failure could, you know, cause someone in their family to not get fed. I, I I actually... find it much harder to be aggressive right now. I think I'm I'm still aggressive, but I'm finding it much harder. But you're not. You're finding it— Well, I was going to say, do you have people in your life who, who challenge you to be that way? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But those people also—it's a philosophy thing for them. It's not, you know, they are responsible. Like, I remember— Oh, it was early, uh, early in the days of Crossroads, this church I, I, I started, and I always thought it would be just amazing to have staff members. Like, it would be awesome. You have all these staff members, <laughs> and they do stuff that you don't want to do. That would, be, that would be great. And, of course, that's not—that's for the most part, that's not the case. And the, and the worst part of my day, every day, was walking down the steps to get to my car because when I walked down the steps to get to my car, I saw all these other staff cars and they all represented responsibility to me. They all represented people that if I messed up, they were not going to make their rent payment, mortgage payment, and some of their family was going to go hungry. And I, I hated that walk. I actually would train myself as I walked down those steps to blur out and not see the rest of the parking lot because it would it would it would freak me out. Um, Do you still feel that way? Uh, yes, I do still feel that way. Yes, I feel that way. <laughs> at our at our church, we have a uh, we have a staff meeting every week, and 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 there's introducing new staff members, and say so I want to I want to introduce Jen, who's now in our comms department, with you, and everyone. It's come humorous. People look over me, and and I'm the guy who's not clapping. And I told him, I said, look, I told, for you all folks, this might be really, really good, but understand that's one more mouth to feed. And if things go south here, that's one more chance that you're going to get laid off. <laughs> that's one more likelihood of resource that 
can't go your way. So I love every staff member, but I also feel a massive responsibility to every staff member. And these people are not, uh, you, you have, you know, 300, 300. I think it might be, a, might be, I don't know. I've never led an organization of 300 staff members that raise their support. But for me, that's like, these aren't people who've raised their own support. This is, you come here and we give you salary and medical benefits and retirement and vacation. And yet, you know, and so you're taking on a lot. And uh, I still feel that. Yes, absolutely. I still feel that. Hmm. Back to back is not Beth and Todd's thing. It is not, those 300 people don't work for me. I am not, they got called by God. They're being resourced by God. They're being filled up by God, strengthened by God, convicted by God, taken out one day by God. Like we create a structure so that things are organized and move forward and progress and we give them accountability and eventually paychecks and all those things. But I don't feel like I don't, I don't feel that sense of responsibility for them. Like, and, and when people leave, I don't take it personally, which helps me tremendously because in organizations of our size, there is, you know, there is people who go on to other opportunities. And if I took it personally, it would, it would be really actually crippling. Yeah. So let's do some story on your family. 10 kids. You have 10 kids. There's a lot of them. How many of them are DNA and how many are adopted? We have three birth children. Uh, I have four adopted children. And then we have a bunch of foster girls that lived with us seven, eight, nine years that aged out of foster care in our family. So Todd always says if they still cost us time and money, we count them. So yeah, that's good. You all that add all that up. So the youngest four are boys and then the other seven are girls. What, uh, what what are the ages of folks who are still under your roof right now? Uh, I have a 16-year-old son, 17-year-old son, 19-year-old son who's in college, 21-year-old son who's in college. And then the girls start at 21 and they go up to 33. Okay, so 10 is a lot, <laughs> but it sounds like you're empty nesters right now. No, you're definitely not empty nesters. My house feels like summer camp. Because oh, really? they all have, you know, their own people and tribe they bring into the house. So on any given night, yeah, there's this, there's an expression in Spanish. When you have more people for dinner than you're planning on, you add more water to the beans. So <laughs> I got a lot of water going into my beans most nights. <laughs> that is good. Well, that was a pretty aggressive move for you to have that many children to be responsible for. How, how did you do that? I don't mean just how'd you make that decision, but just emotionally and everything else. I'm, I got three. I'm tired. Think, I'm tired thinking what it would have been like to have 10. Yeah. Uh, the first child, my gosh, I got pregnant with as soon as we moved to Mexico and I didn't even know I was pregnant. I just kept thinking I was allergic to Mexican food. I didn't, we thought I had a parasite till for quite a while. Then we realized exactly what kind of parasite she was going to be. But, um, that I think probably the most aggressive initial move I made that became a lesson for us as we built the rest of our family is we felt called to adopt, which no one, you know, my adopted son is 21 years old. We adopted him when he was six weeks old. So 21 years ago, 25-year-old Christians weren't, who were biologically capable of having children weren't adopting. That's right. Today, it's a lot more common. It's a very vogue thing today, which is good. I'm glad it is. But you're right. It was not the case back then. Okay. I'm, I'm adopted. Okay. I don't know if you know. I'm adopted. I did not know that. Yeah, I am adopted. And yeah, when you tell people you were adopted... 20 years ago, let alone 40 years ago, people looked at you like, oh my gosh, you're kidding. You were all over twist. <laughs> oh no, they, they had no framework for that at all. They didn't. And so when we felt God calling us, I mean, I used to always say to Todd, I had a baby in my heart before you were ever there. Like I knew, I that was one thing that was really clear to me. I knew I was supposed to adopt a child. So it was, there was a lot of like noise around us of people thinking that was crazy. Some of that noise came from the people in our lives and that noise came from social workers and like, why, why would you want to adopt a child? You obviously just had one. You're fine. And, um, Evan's story is 
kind of long and beautiful, but basically we adopted him. We were six weeks old, and I didn't know this when we adopted him, but within an hour or two of having him in our care, I realized something terribly wrong with him. He um, eventually would be diagnosed in Cincinnati Children's as having severe cerebral palsy. So, like, legs were crossed, arms were scissored. He was a, he was physically a mess. And for 18 months, he didn't even really move, met, met no physical milestones. And it messed with my head because my dad had died of cancer at 51 the year before we moved to Mexico, and I had begged Jesus to heal him in all the ways my Bible told me to do audaciously, and he didn't heal him. And so I I got a spiritual bruise, and I, I didn't want to admit my spiritual bruise. I created all these workarounds around it, but the Lord and I knew it was there. And so when Evan got his diagnosis, I was like, well, I don't even know if you heal anymore. I asked you a bunch of times, and you never did it, so I'm not even going to ask you for this kid. I mean, I'll love him, and I'll believe you have something for it in me, but— and so, anyway, before Evan's second birthday, a lady came to our house, um, a social worker—I mean, a physical therapist—and she told me that I was rescuing him physically too much. He would cry. His muscles were called hypertonic, so they were very tight, very difficult to move. And my daughter would run over. They're the same age. That she would run over to wherever he was and take away his toy, and he would cry, and I'd fix it all. And she said, "You need to let him struggle." And I said, "Get out of my house! I'm constantly..." dangling in front of his face cheerios and the kid is a very hard life and don't tell me what i am and i'm not doing goodbye and she left my house but her words landed in a soft spot and he cried he was crying a little bit later than that and i sat down and just started to cry with him and then he started to move in a way he had never moved in his whole life enough that i got up out of the room and i went and got our phones that used to be attached to the wall to have someone come over and look at what was happening and by the time I got back in the room, he had essentially army crawled from one end of the room to the other. And he was holding on to the, the skirt of our couch, and he started to rock his body. And I was just transfixed watching him. And it wasn't very pretty, but he popped himself up to a stand. And as soon as he stood up, I thought, I'm watching something supernatural. I have no framework for this. And then he did what they call cruising. He held onto the couch and he walked the length of it. And then he twisted on his heel and he walked across the room into my arms. And I, I just had, I had no words. I had no, I didn't know what to do. I threw him, him and his sister in the car, drove them to where Todd was working. I, I didn't even buckle them in their seatbelts. Like I, I got, to, we, like I set him down as soon as I got to where Todd was. And he walks over to his dad and we have this moment where we were like crying and like, and anyway, today he's a 21-year-old college football player. He's six foot two, at 200 some pounds, and his body works <laughs> amazingly. And wow. I, I got a chance to share at his university his story recently, and I was the students started to like respond in the crowd when he came up on stage with me, and they realized the story I had been telling was someone that they recognized. And I stopped them. And I'm like, hey, listen, the reason I'm telling you this is not so you know something wildly personal about my family. The reason I'm telling you this is because we've got to remember that with God, all things are possible. That I had our, I had this established belief that because I asked God to heal someone that I knew he loved and he didn't do it, he doesn't do it anymore. And I think that experience early on of like you, God is like always reintroducing himself to me. And I think that's part of the secret sauce of the aggressive life is what you think you know about God might not actually be all there is to know. And if we think that all things are possible, then we should put ourselves in the position where something possible happens. And so now I don't, I don't, watching Evan be healed was a tremendous marker in my life. Like, okay, well, if you can do that, there's nothing you can't do. And yes. if you decide not to do it, it's because something better's going on. But 
there's no doubt you can do anything you want. So as we built our family and ministry and life, that that was a pretty anchor experience. So as you're looking at your future right now, Mm -hmm. do you think your future consists of new things that you haven't yet done? Absolutely. Like what? What do you think those things might be? I don't. I don't or know. You, you don't want to go public with them yet. No, I mean I don't care. I have a very public persona. I don't. I mean, I don't know what they are, but I definitely do not think that everything that I'm just going to keep doing better the things that I have already done. Mm-hmm. I think that's the the temptation is like, okay, well I've already done this. So I'm just going to keep doing this, and now I'm just going to do it with more experience or smarter, more strategic. I think there's absolutely new things that are still out there, and I, I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know where he's going to do it. I don't know when. I don't know anything, but I know as soon as I feel more questions than answer, and that fit feeling in my stomach, it's it's right. Yeah. So give us a final charge for, for our listeners. Final charge to go after your dreams, to try something different, to step out into a new territory. What's the what's the final the final five percent? There's this word that is my aggressive anthem. Um, it's So in the Bible, like seven different times in the Old Testament, somebody says, here I am. And um, there's this, with the word that they use in the Hebrew that they translate as here I am is this little word, hineni. And I learned um, a little while ago that hineni actually means more than how we say it in English, here I am. It means whatever it is you're about to ask of me, I'm already in agreement of it. And I started to tell the Lord like any, like whatever you're asking of me, I'm in agreement of it. I don't have to know how long it's going to take, what it will require of me. I don't need to know who's going to be in it with me. I don't need to, I don't need to know how you're going to eventually rescue me from it. I don't need to know anything. If you're asking it of me, I'm in agreement to it. So I was like telling everybody Hineni, Hineni, and I was, you know, people were making tattoos with Hineni. And then I was in Israel and I said to this guy, like, hey, I'm telling people about this word. Like, am I saying it right? Can you just confirm everything I'm teaching is still like actually true? And he goes, yeah, that's true. And then he said, you know, there's some time in the Bible when the Lord says Hineni to you. And I said, there's some place in the Bible where the Lord says to me, whatever it is I'm asking of him, he's already in agreement of it. Tell me where that is. And Isaiah 58 is talks about feeding the hungry and inviting people to the table and clothing the naked and going to those that were lost. And it says, and when you do that, your healing will dawn. And when you cry out for help, he will answer, here I am, Hineni. And it was like this big click to me that like, okay, so when I get busy doing your business, like feeding people and clothing people and bringing them to the table, when I get in the middle of your work and I get in over my head, all I have to do is ask for you and whatever it is I'm asking of you, you're already in agreement of it. If we can get that, if we can click that Hineni and my Hineni to him and his Hineni to me, there is nothing to stop whatever aggressive step we want to take. Yeah. So how can people follow you or catch up with you or hear more about you and what you got going on? Tell yeah. us how. Yeah, they could go to the back-to-back website, back the number 2 backorg and there they can find out about how to join us in anything or some of the different things that I've written and, and uh, speak about. So. Social media accounts or anything? Yeah, I do. If you can figure out how to spell Guckenberger, I always say he was a cute boy at the right time. But if you can <laughs> if you can spell that, you can find me on all the social media and sites. And books. What's a couple of, of the titles of your books? Yeah, the last two books I wrote, um, one's a 40-day devotional, encouraging people to say yes for 40 straight days. Um, so it's called Reckless Faith, the 40-day devotional of saying yes. And uh, another one's called Start With Amen. All right, Beth Guckenberger, it's fantastic having you with us. You added a lot of value to all of us, including myself. So so thanks for going for it and being aggressive. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for listening. If this episode has impacted you, hey, share with somebody else. All of us have influence, people that can look to us for direction. Use your influence positively, aggressively. And if this has meant something to you, then pass it along to those that you're leading. 
Uh, you can see more at bryantome.com or search me on Instagram. Special thanks to the band Judges for our music. You can find more from them on Instagram at the band Judges or at facebook.com slash the band Judges. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio. 